we are going to be going back into our series on the Gospel of John for the love of God. And so I'd like to invite you uh, this morning to turn to the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 8. Um, we, fin we took a break starting in the beginning of May for the summer, and, uh, and we'll be jumping back in over the next uh, several weeks. And, uh, and so we'll be in, again, chapter 8 of cha uh, John, page 894, and the Bible provider provided for you. And, uh, and so I thought, since it's been a little while since we've been there, I want to just briefly remember um, the focus of our series, The Love of God. When John wrote the book, uh, the book of John, he, he wrote it with the intention of presenting the person of Christ, uh, the, the love of God through the person of Christ, that, that love is a person it's the, uh, and is Jesus Christ. Uh, and that we quickly see that the identity of Christ, that he is divine, that he's the son of God, the, and that the promises of God are fulfilled only in Christ. And uh, if we would uh, even look at John 3.16, the most quoted scripture uh, of maybe of all time, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, that God so loved, like one of the most quoted verses talks about the love of God. John reflects the love of God. And then if we would jump to one of John's epistles, in 1 John 4, 9, it says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Again, the love of God is manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the love of God. And so we want to come to the scriptures, we want to come to John, and we want to see Christ. If we come to the, the Word uh, and we read the, the Scriptures and we're not getting a clearer view of who Christ is and being drawn into a deeper relationship with Him, then we're missing the point. And he does this, it says, so that we might live through Him. That seeing Christ and experiencing the love of God leads to life, a changed life in Him. Uh, the Apostle Paul put it this way, but God shows His love for us in this, that while we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is demonstrated in the person of Christ and what he was willing to do for us. And so we can see, again, God's love is most clearly seen in the person of Christ, his death and resurrection, and his experience in the changed life. One commentator said, To know the truth of God but not obey it is slavery, but to know the truth of Christ and live it out is to experience the love of Christ. And, and we see quickly in John that the Seeing and believing in Christ leads to uh, repentance and a changed life. And that's so important, especially as we come to our passage today. And so the theme is the love of God. And now I just want to briefly review a little bit on the, the purpose of the book of John. He wrote it with those in mind who, that they would read it and hear it and see Christ and how that he has done things, that he, he, is, he is who he says he is, that he's done what he promised to do, and that we can trust him with our lives. The bookends of John, beginning in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Uh, that it starts with those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ are become the children of God, become in a right relationship with God. Then we go to the end of the book in John 20, uh, 30 and 31 says now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in his book 
but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So very beginning, first chapter, it's about believing in who Jesus Christ is. The last chapter, these are written that you might believe, and that you, by believing that you might have life, a changed life. So to know the love of God is to know Jesus Christ and to walk with him in a way that leads to a changed life. Jesus himself said that he has come to give us life and life to the full. So as with that in mind, um, we're gonna, as we look to, to 8, actually I'm going to go one more place before we get, get to chapter 8. Um, John chapter 1, it's on page 886. Now, <clears throat> as I was considering our text, and I wanted to, um, so just a few pages over, and, uh, and trying to outline it. So it was one of the passages, for some reason, I just kept getting a roadblock of how to outline this passage and, and really praying through it. It was a, a different week, a lot of transitions, a lot of changes. Um, and, and, and so I'm like, I just need to step back and I just need to start in John chapter one and read through my passage today, get context and get clarity. And as I was reading John chapter one, I saw the outline for John chapter eight, uh, verses one through 11. So if you... Um, Look to John 1, verses 9 through 13, and, uh, and we'll read that, and then I'll walk through that passage as well as 8, 1 through 11. It says, the, <clears throat> verse 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then jumping to uh, verse 17, says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made the Father known. So and <clears throat> really our, um, our outline is going to come from John 1, 11 and John uh, 1, 17. And how in the first chapter of the book of John, John sets up the purpose of his book, the teaching of what's going on, and then we come into a story about Christ's interaction with someone and how we see the teaching of what John said in chapter 1 come to life in, in Christ's interaction. So uh, with that said, uh, let's go to chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple— all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the, the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus, sent, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one con condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I con condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And so from this very last verse is where we get our title for today, From Now On, Sin No More. 
and the, the importance as we come to the scriptures and as we come to Christ that we see that Christ, the knowledge of Christ and our, and our love for Christ affects change in our lives and should cause a changed life. So again, John 1.11 says, he came to his own. And we see this right here in the very opening verses. Um, first it starts off with, but, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Um, he was preaching and teaching in the temple, coming out of uh, John chapter 7, uh, had some uh, conflict and discourses with the, with the scribes and Pharisees, and, and people at the end of the day would go off to their homes. And, and Jesus didn't have a house. He went off to the Mount of Olives. Now, it's exciting that just in a couple of weeks, Peter would get a chance to be on the Mount of Olives. But when I was there, um, there's these little grottos, these little caves. Um, there's, a, one, there's a church there called the, the Church of Our Father, which has um, the Lord's Prayer in every language from around the world, just all over um, inside and out the building all the way around the walls it's just amazing to walk through it but the church is built over a grotto and you can walk into this it's a little cave and it's still just a dirt cave not a lot of things in israel today are still like you actually get to see the dirt and stuff everything's really ornate and built up but you walk into a grotto and they're like this is very much like a cave that Peter, that jesus and the disciples would have just camped out in one night uh, they would have just crossed over the, the Kidron Valley, gone up in the Mount of Olives, and they would have just camped out for the night, and then Jesus would got, got up early and just walked down the Kidron Valley up into the, the Temple Mount, and he sat there to preach and teach. And I think it was just, a, it's just pretty profound to see uh, those places and to, to see how close uh, the Mount of Olives is to um, the Temple Mount and where Jesus was. Um, but if we consider this as we—that Jesus— retreated to the Mount of Olives, and he comes over, and he would come into the temple and teach. He came to his own. He, that if we remember, uh, the, just the, the teaching of the scripture says, even before time began, that God set forth in motion a plan to create us to be in a relationship with him, knowing that we would mess that up, that we would be separated from God, and so he ordered a plan to bring his son into this world, to take on uh, flesh and to become one of us so that we could be reconciled to him, that Jesus came to bring us to him. And John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus is full of grace and truth and how he interacts with us. So, um, <clears throat> but it, it is that God planned this out, that he would come to his own. And, and in the Old Testament, God called out Abram from uh, the Chaldees, and he called out a, a people group, and he, he established the nation of Israel to be a light in this world, to fulfill his promises of bringing the Messiah into this world. And, uh, and he set up the tabernacle worship, which led to the setup of the temple, that God would dwell uh, with his people, and that when he would dwell, when he come onto the tabernacle, the temple, the, the Shekinah glory, the cloud of, of God would come onto the, the temple, and they would know that God's presence was with them. Uh, and God said it very clearly in the Old Testament. He just set it up that I'm going to set before you a blessing and a curse. You, the blessing, you, here's my commandments to obey them, to walk with me, to love me, desire me with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and I will be with you, and you'll be blessed. And then I'll set before you a curse that you disobey me, you reject me, that you serve the gods of the nations, and you do what you want, and you'll receive cursing and condemnation. But, he, uh, <clears throat> but the whole setup was, and when you go to Leviticus, and you can read about sacrificing goats in several different ways and you kind of get lost in it and he's saying but the one thing about leviticus is when you come to god you come to god on his terms you cannot come to him on your own and the old testament system is set up to say this is how you come to a holy god 
You have to cover your sins. You can't come to him as you are. And when Jesus entered into our experience, he brought the glory of God into, into, uh, the, into this world. And he invites us into a relationship to be reconciled to God, not through a tabernacle, not through a temporary tent, but through the very person of Jesus Christ that we can then have direct access to the Father. We can have forgiveness of sins, reconciliation. We can cause a child of God and um, be given freedom and victory over sin. And so Jesus came into this world and he came to his people as he sat down to teach them. And so <clears throat> imagine if you just walk into the temple courts. And was, there was uh, the courts, were, there was a pretty large area where the rabbis would come in and they would teach. And, and uh, oftentimes, and we see uh, Christ fall, fulfill the rabbinical method of going and reading from a scripture, stand and read, and then sit to teach. And I, I was just curious about the standing and sitting, so I did a little reading on it just to see about how the, the rabbis would the read, they would stand reading out of respect for the word of God, but the sitting was a, to show the symbolism of the reading of the scriptures is done, and now, the, now they're going to teach. And just to separate what is the reading of God's word and what's the teaching of the rabbi. I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. So that the, the, the rabbis would sit and, and, um, and the people would gather around them to, to learn from them. And so we see this when um, Jesus went to the house of Mary and Martha, and Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, and Martha was busy. And it, this, this, even in the home, Jesus would take that sitting position to teach, and it was custom that those who would learn would come and sit at his feet. And, uh, and so he came to his people in a very intimate setting, and he would sit. Now, I was thinking of the, the, the other rabbis would go, and here it says that all of them came to hear Jesus. So you, here you have a teacher come in and sit down, and everybody's like, I want to hear what that guy says. And so the courts kind of empty and kind of go over to the one corner to hear Jesus, which is one of the things that was happening that caused the scribes and the Pharisees to get upset. They were jealous, and they were, um, they were envious of his, his authority that he would teach from. And we see that throughout the New Testament. So we do see that here in this brief encounter that Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And John, we're going to jump to verse 6 quick, quickly. It says just, this they said to test him. We'll go back to what they said, that they may have some charge to bring against him. The scribes and Pharisees brought to get him a charge, a question, not out of sincerity of, hey, here's a teacher with authority. Let us learn. But now they're like, how can we entrap him? So Jesus is going through a season of conflict um, leading up to what we know that it's going to lead to the cross, to his crucifixion. Uh, and his death, burial, and resurrection. And we have the luxury of some 2,000 years later to look back knowing what has happened. Even as John writes this, he says, um, as, you know, he is giving us an indicator of he knows what's actually going on. Now, could you imagine the, the writer being in uh, this temple mount with Jesus while he's teaching and seeing the, the scribal, scribes and Pharisees come up and questioning Jesus? And here, the disciples, all of them, they grew up, you know, in this culture, and they, had, they learned to revere the scribes and the Pharisees, their teachings. Uh, but then when they encountered Jesus, things began to change. But could you imagine someone who you viewed as an authority and a, a teacher in your life uh, saying one something that is, seems to be opposed to what, you know, Jesus is saying, and uh, how the struggle, the emotional struggle that he must have felt at the time, like, do I have this right? Like, those are the guys I listen to all my life. But they're opposed to him. But Jesus is unlike anybody else I know. But do I have it right? Do I have it right? Like, just that doubt, that, that's, 
that little seed that can come in and, and mess with us. And, and so what he must have had, but here when he writes it years later, he's going to say right up the, the front, hey, these guys, they aren't legitimate. Ask, they're not legitimately asking questions. They're testing. They're trying to, they're, they're conniving. They've come up with something here uh, and that this isn't a sincere discussion. This is where they're trying to pit Jesus in a, in a corner. And so, uh, so as we, we consider that they're just trying to destroy Jesus' credibility and ultimately they want to die. But Jesus is coming freely into the temple daily. Even later on, he says, daily I sat in the temples with you. Why didn't you arrest me during the day? You know, Jesus was there regularly, even though he knew they were seeking to, to kill him. And he's freely calling them. He was engaging them in conversation. He's seeking them to know him, that they would come to repentance and the truth, yet they persisted in their unbelief. They thought they had it all together. They were caught up in their self-righteousness, and they rejected him. But it's a reminder that even today, the Lord freely calls, and he sends us out to share his message, to daily call to people, to turn to trust him, to repent of their sins, to, to follow him. And yet, so often, we, we persist in our unbelief. And when we come to the word of God, when we come to Jesus Christ, we have to come to the place and say, it's not about me, it's about him. I don't have a right. I am a sinner. I am undeserving. I need Jesus. And so I urge you to, to understand repentance and quit our unbelief because we are prone to that. The, the, the thing about the Pharisees is they were good people. They did a lot of good things. They were very knowledgeable about the scriptures, but they, they became self-righteous. They became prideful and arrogant, and they thought they had it all. And uh, even to the exclusion or the abuse of the word of God, as we're going to see here as we jump back up to verse 3. So he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And then verse 17 of chapter 1 says, For the law was given through Moses. And this is where they quote. They go to, to Jesus and they're going to say, Hey, we have a question about the law. So the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in, in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And again, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So a commentator wrote that the context here involves self-righteous men who were full of judgment and ready to destroy a woman for their own evil ends. Jesus saw through their pseudo-righteousness and judged it for what it was. Moses gave the law. Actually, really, in their arrogance and their pride, they failed to see that the, the actual real lawgiver, the one who spoke the word to Moses, who gave the law, was in their presence. But the law, apart from grace, only brings condemnation. The law, apart from grace, only brings condemnation. Uh, we see that this, the New Testament tells us that the, the law is our school teacher that leads us to a place where we, we know that we can't keep the law. We come to the, just the Ten Commandments. Uh, though there are 613 laws in the Old Testament, we have the top ten that summarize all of them, and we can't even keep the top ten. Um, you know, we come to it, we should say, I can't do this, I need a savior. That's what the law is for. And the law apart from grace brings condemnation. And here we see the Pharisees were so caught up in their plan to destroy Jesus that they were willing to destroy a woman's life and to, um, 
to brutalize the, the scriptures. When they, when they bring this text, they're, they're not under speaking and understanding. They're manipulating the text for their own device. And that's something we definitely want to be very careful about here. At Lakeside, we believe in exegesis to draw out from the scriptures. Let the scriptures be the authority where we draw the text out. Um, just like the, the, the title Exodus in the Bible is Exodus is the road out. And when we come to the scriptures, we draw out the truth of scriptures. There's a, another term called eisegesis, which is reading your own interpretation into scriptures. That's making the scriptures say what you want it to say because it's convenient to you. And that's what we want to avoid. And, and here's what they did is they, they twisted scriptures, though they, there was truth to what they said, but they used it in such a way um, not for God's glory, but for their own device. And so here, like, they could have come to him and said, Jesus, we caught someone in sin, and the, the Old Testament says we need to purge sin from our place. Like, help, help us learn to purge sin from our lives and from our communities. That's what the, the law is given for, is how to purge sin from our community, from our lives. But they're not seeking the glory of God and getting rid of sin. They weren't seeking repentance for the woman. No, they were seeking to entrap Jesus, knowing that at that day and age, um, that most likely people weren't being put to death by stoning for adultery any longer, um, in part because Rome had taken over and they've removed the right for uh, the, the Jewish people to enact their own judgment. So they would have to go to the, the Roman authorities to get permission to put someone to death, yet as we see in uh, the story of Christ later. So if Jesus would have said, you're right, the law says that, let's, uh, let's go ahead and stone her, then he, he would become unpopular with the crowds because, one, nobody did that anymore, as much anyways, and two, um, he, the, Rome would be against him. And then if he said, no, let's not stone her, then he would be, well, defying the law. The law does say, and um, Deuteronomy see. Uh, 22 22 says if a man is found lying with the wife of another man both of them shall die the man who lay with the woman and the woman so you shall purge evil from israel and so <clears throat> this was the law and it did say that but they were not seeking to fulfill the law they were seeking to entrap him and it reminds me of this passage in james chapter 3 when it talks about wisdom from above or earthly wisdom it says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, and it's really like as we see these Pharisees, it's where we see them, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make it. So if we look at James 3 there, and we compare what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing, and we compare how Christ responds, we do see uh, this selfish ambition, this jealousy, this disorder in every vile practice. One, you have to come to the, the, the story and say, wait a second, they, they caught the woman in the act of adultery, but where's the man? So they show partiality, which James also says, and the scriptures are very clear, don't show partialities because God is not a respecter of persons. So they should have had both the husband, the, the man and the woman. Um, well, they didn't. They only brought what was convenient to pit, uh, a, to 
to trap Jesus. And, uh, but yet they were willing, again, to distort Scripture, to, to destroy this woman and to destroy uh, Jesus is what they want to do. Yet Christ's first response to them was simply to ignore them. <laughs> he was sitting and teaching, and he just reaches down and he starts drawing in the ground. And he just ignored them. And they're asking him, and they, I mean, could you imagine these guys coming in just full of pomp and circumstance and ready, oh, we got this, we got, we got a great argument, we're going to destroy this guy, we've got a scapegoat, we got all this stuff, it's all ordered, and they're just, let's, let's do this, we got this, and Jesus just ignores them. I mean, and uh, for a prideful person, one of the worst things you can do is just ignore them, like they just get so mad at that, right? And he just writes in the, in the ground, and uh, <clears throat> And so they keep persisting. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What, do you, what would you say? Come on. And they're just prodding him and prodding him and prodding him. And, and so uh, he, uh, sorry, I lost my spot. The, but with the, with the, it showed how lacking in judgment they really were because they couldn't see that the king of kings was in their midst that the one who spoke things into existence was in their midst, that the lawgiver, the sustainer of all things, who in a moment could just snap his fingers and they would be obliterated from existence, was there, and that they kept on pushing and pushing and pushing. He could have stood up and acted judgment on them and set the record straight, but as John three seventeen reminded us, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so that we see that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, the end of chapter 1, verse 17. So in Jesus' response, we see grace and truth. It says, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him, him who is without sin among you be the first to sh throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So after they persist, persisted, Jesus does answer, but not in a way that any of them would have expected. Instead, he, he changes the standard of, of enacting judgment. When he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at, your, at you, he flipped it around on them. And a uh, commentator said this, but Jesus went beyond the usual interpretation of the, that prescription and demanded of the accusing witnesses that they themselves not be in breach of God-given precepts, na of, namely that they be without sin. The standard Jesus demanded was that authentic accusers themselves not be subject to accusation. And so I believe it's in Deuteronomy 17 says the, the one who brings the accusation must be the one to throw the first stone. Um, and he's like, okay, <laughs> if you're without sin, then you can be the one who casts the first stone. And then he sits down and again, and he begins writing in the dirt. Now, I know you're curious about what he wrote, right? I'm sure everybody has a theory out there. Um, and I've heard some good ones. Someone, well, maybe it's just the Ten Commandments because the finger of God wrote that in the Old Testament. It's a plausible theory. Some say maybe he just wrote the sins of everybody out there. That probably be a really long list and take a long time. Um, maybe that's why he ignored them for so long. But, uh, but really, I, I really appreciate Stallings. One commentator said, one, one supposes that he would supply this information if it was pertinent. The point seems to be that Jesus deliberately ignores them. <laughs> so um, it's not about what he wrote. And even when you look at the text, what's it say? It says, 
after they heard this, they walked away. It doesn't say after they saw their sin on the ground or after they read the writing that he did or the drawing that he said. It says after they heard Christ's words, they were convicted, full of shame, and they walked away, right? It's not about what he wrote. So it's always good when you come to Scripture not to get, I mean, it's fun to, to, to surmise and to, to talk about it, but let's not get caught up in the things that the Bible doesn't say. Let's focus on what it does say. And so, so they walk away, but only the guilty woman and the perfect son of God remain. And if we think about the standard that Jesus gave, the one without sin can throw the first stone. <clears throat> Jesus sitting there before her is the perfect one, the sinless one, who had every right to stand up and throw that first stone. He was the creator God. He is the one who's been offended by the sin, to been sinned against and has been robbed and betrayed. And he could have said, this is what the law says. You stand judged and condemned. And he could have thrown that stone. Instead, how does he respond? He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And her response says so much, even though it's just a, a little bit here in the text. When, and though um, there, there could have been so much more that happened here, but this is what has been recorded again, that we might believe in Jesus Christ and see uh, who he is. But he said, she says, no one Lord, and the word for Lord here is very much Lord, where she, it could be a, a, uh, the very word in Greek used for Yahweh in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go, and from now on sin no more. So, <clears throat> Grace that he gives. And again, we come to that Jesus is full of grace and truth. The, the grace that we have, see here is unmerited favor. It's uh, getting what we do not deserve. The mercy of Christ is on display here, not getting what we do deserve. The law was clear. She deserved condemnation and death. But Jesus, the perfect son of God, knew that in a few short days, he himself would take her condemnation upon himself on that cross, shedding his blood to pay for the sins of the world. And in his resurrection would conquer sin and death. So he, the perfect one, the sinless lamb of God, the one who would take that upon himself is the only one who could say, I do not condemn you. But he doesn't stop there. He says, go and from now on sin no more. John Piper says, not, neither do I condemn you so it doesn't matter if you commit adultery, but I am reestablishing righteousness in your life. And for the Pharisees, if they will have it, on the basis of an experience of grace, don't commit adultery anymore. Not mainly because you fear stoning, but because you have met God and have been rescued by his grace, saved by his grace. Grace is never an excuse for sin. It doesn't just cover sin. When we see that grace is offered and receive it, it changes our life. D.A. Carson says the proper response to mercy received on account of past sins is purity in the future. Again, the proper response to mercy received on past sins is purity in the future. This is God's will for us, that we would see Jesus for who he is. We would receive his free gift of grace and that we would live like Christ, forsaking our past sins and pursuing righteousness. Almost just went back on that next loop on that roller coaster. <laughs> that, back to the beginning. No, sorry. Um, again, we are called to be holy as God is holy. God hates sin, 
But pursuing holiness without a profound experience of grace in our own lives produces hypocrisy and doctrinal cruelty. This is what we see in the, in the scribes and Pharisees. They pursued holiness without that profound experience of grace in their lives. Jesus came into the world to provide that grace through his cross and to establish holiness, righteousness, and justice on the foundation of our experience of his grace. So come to him for grace and set your face to sin no more. In closing, just a few more verses from the Gospel of John. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. As this woman caught in adultery, we each stand in condemnation uh, before God. There's nothing that we can do about our own sin. There's nothing we can do to change that. We can't earn God's favor, but Jesus came to change that. And by God's grace and his mercy, we stand here confessing Christ in freedom and forgiveness and that we can say yes and amen to Jesus Christ. Jesus changes our lives from condemnation to glory. John 6, 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And I love how John says this on, on several different occasions, but Matt challenged the youth group to, uh, to, to try to read through the Bible in 90 days. And so we've been, some of us, plotting through it here and there. I'm not on schedule, just as a confession. But 90 days is a, a really short time to get through the entire Bible. But reading through the Old Testament and then seeing how the New Testament writers talk about it is just amazing as we continue to balance that through. And, and when talked about the serpents in the wilderness who bit um, the Israelites, disobeying the Israelites, and they raised up the snake and says, anyone who looks at the snake shall be saved. And that, that act of belief to look at that snake on the pole to be saved from that venom, uh, and God delivered them. And, and John says later, and that as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever looks to him will be saved. It is about that faith in Christ to look to him that as he's raised up and we elevate him in our life and say, yes, this is the son of God. This is the love of God. And you have that profound experience of grace that leads to a transformed life. We have the hope that he will raise us up with him on the last day. And so <clears throat> I read this quote by Tim Keller. It says, this can be your story as well. God made you to love him supremely, but he lost you. He returned to get you back, and it took the cross to do it. He absorbed your darkness so that one day you can finally and dazzlingly become your true self and take your seat at his eternal feast. This fact that we are desperately lost without Christ, but God loved us so much that he was willing to come as a man to live a perfect life and to go to the cross for our sins. And then after he rose from the dead, he invites us. Just ponder that, that God, the holy God, the perfect God, the sinless God would invite you into a relationship with him. He says, he doesn't need you. There's nothing about you that makes him uh, require you to be a part of his life. And yet he says, I want you. Come to me. Receive me. Come to Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Would you leave your unbelief and believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he has done what he promised to do and he will complete what he's promised to do as well. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your word and the reminder that we have uh, in your scriptures that 
that Jesus Christ is king, that he is real, that he is your love personified, that he has um, come to this world that we might see him. And even as we uh, encounter this, the, the Gospel of John and we see the, the story of this woman who was caught, broken, and desperate, sinless, Lord, and, and the, the religious leaders against her, yet Jesus showed a better way, that there's grace, there's hope in him, and that he bore our sins on the cross so that we don't have to. Lord, I pray today that if anyone here doesn't know that grace, has not received you, that they would choose to follow Christ today, to believe that he is, that, and see what he's done and what he's willing to do, that he calls all sinners unto himself, and may we lift him up in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.